And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. So welcome to this 10th episode of Salmon Fest Radio. I'm your host, Dave Applin. And I'm Satchel Pondolfino. And we're here in beautiful Homer, Alaska, on the historic and unceded lands of the Denina people. And shout out to our indigenous friends across Kachemak Bay, the Supiak people, uh, who have taken care of this place for generations and generations. This show is about salmon stewardship, so we're here to honor all salmon stewardship, past, present, and future. So thank you to the traditional people that have learned how to live in sustainable relationship with salmon and who help us carry that forward today. I'm excited about this episode because we've brought together two very different stories, but they're part of the same larger story. We're going to go up to the Yukon River, to the village of Rampart, and talk with Charlie Wright. For Charlie, the changes that are occurring are occurring quickly, and they have very real, immediate consequences in the community's ability to feed itself and take care of future generations. We're also going to talk in our band interview with Dana Lyons. Dana is a troubadour and a a, a minstrel, a traveling singer that advocates for the environment all over the world and especially around the Northwest United States. We're going to take a look at his work, especially in uh, the Northwest. I'll bet some of our listeners will remember his hit single, Cows with Guns. Yep, I'm definitely not one of those <laughs> listeners. Have you ever heard one of the? Have you ever heard that song, Satchel? No, no. It's a I hilarious don't know song. Very well. It's hilarious. We'll have to do that after we do this. So. Yeah, we didn't actually catch his onstage performance on record, but we'll make sure to pepper in some Dana Lyons nonetheless. Since you haven't heard Dana's hit "Cows with Guns," why don't we just start there as your tutorial? Fat and docile, big and dumb They look so stupid, they aren't much fun Cows aren't fun They eat to grow, grow to die Die to be et at the hamburger fry Cows well done Nobody thunk it, nobody knew No one imagined the great cow guru Cows are one. He hid in the forest, read books with great zeal. He loved Che Guevara, a revolutionary veal. Cows say tongue. He spoke about justice, but nobody stirred. He felt like an outcast, alone in the herd. Cow doll drums. He moved, we must fight, escape or we'll die. Cows gathered around, cause the stakes were so high. Bad cow pun. But then he was captured, stuffed into a crate, loaded onto a truck where he rode to his fate. Cows are bummed. He was a scrawny calf who looked rather woozy. No one suspected he was packing an Uzi. Cows with guns. They came with a needle to stick in his thigh. He kicked for the groin, he pissed in their eye. Cow well hung. 
knocked over a tractor and ran for the door. Six gallons of gas flowed out on the floor. Run, cows, run. He picked up a bullhorn and jumped up on the hay. We are free-roving bovines. We run free today. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free with the buffalo or die. Cows with guns. Crashed the gate in a great stampede, tipped over milk truck, torched all the feed. Cows have fun. Sixty police cars were piled in a heap, covered in cow pies, covered up deep. Much cow dung. Black smoke rising, darken in the day, twelve burning McDonald's. Have it your way. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free with the buffalo or die. Cows with guns. The president said, enough is enough. These uppity cattle, it's time to get tough. Cow dung flung. The newspapers gloated, folks sighed with relief. Tomorrow at noon, they would all be ground beef. Cows on buns. The cows were surrounded, they waited and prayed. They mooed their last moos, they chewed their last hay. Cows outgunned. was given to turn cows to whoppers, enforced by the might of 10,000 coppers. But on the horizon, surrounding the shoppers, came the deafening roar of chickens in choppers. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. Dana Lyons, you've got a new fan. Count me in. I'll make sure to prioritize your show next time you're on stage at Salmon Fest. This interview was recorded backstage at Salmon Fest 2019. I'm Dana Lyons. I'm from Bellingham, Washington and uh, play guitar. I'm a songwriter and I've written one song specifically about the pebble mine and it's also about the Chewitna mine called Salmon Come Home. But I travel around uh, the country and the world working on these kind of issues. Awesome. Um, so you've been to Alaska before, right? A lot of times. Lot of I times. My favorite place to tour. Great. So what's your favorite thing about Alaska? 
it is big wild wilderness there's an abundance of wild food your gardens are three times as big as ours in the lower 48 and there the state is loaded with semi-crazy adventurers Awesome. Um, so, uh, you played Salmon Fest before, right? Yes, I played a bunch of times. What makes Salmon Fest special? Well, one, the food is awesome, and uh, like to me, it's really meaningful that there's an entire festival dedicated to protecting the salmon and to stop the pebble mine and related issues like that. I don't know if I've ever seen a festival that's so focused, and so. You know, I'm just proud to be a part of it, and I think everyone is. And I, like, I, I do a lot of salmon tours and activism, but I really love how all the musicians get into the spirit of it. And that's not necessarily what they do, but I think I can tell that they love being a part of it too. And there's a, it's kind of a family atmosphere. We're all here for a purpose, and that that raises the joy level. I mean, festivals are joyous, but when you're working on something that's important for the community and the world. It makes it even a happier occasion. Yeah, it's great. So you live in a salmon landscape in Bellingham. I do. Yeah, so um, <laughs> do you fish ever? I do, I do. I'm not much of a fisher, but uh, I do once in a while. I certainly eat a lot of salmon. And uh, I'm on a year-long tour right now for the uh, resident southern resident orcas in the Bellingham, Seattle, British Columbia area. They're in trouble because the salmon are in trouble. It's it's a different story than up here, but it's related. And uh, so yeah, we're we're all we're doing our best. Yeah, I know the Trans Mountain Pipeline's a, a big concern in that region. Have you followed any of that? Or? Yes, we're hoping to beat that. We were thrilled with the court decision last summer, which I think was largely due to the mother orca carrying her dead baby for 17 years, uh, 17 days. That was. Uh, Everything touched everyone's hearts. There's an election coming up in Canada. It could make it harder to stop it, but, uh, but we think we're going to beat it. Um, our region, you know, I, as a country comedy musician, I, I joke, the reason we're beating, the reason we beat six coal ports, the reason we're beating some of the pipelines, the reason I think we're going to beat the Kinder Morgan pipeline is it's kind of like it boils down to one comedy country line. Uh, they get the coal mine and we get the shaft so what do we get out of this deal you know like why why is why is our region's economy threatened when their economy benefits we get we get none of the goodies none of the benefits that's why i think we're going to win because everybody in british columbia is against that or 90 percent everyone 90 percent washington oregon we're against the coal ports we beat them so the problem with this little thing called democracy compromised as it is, is when you have 80 to 90 percent of the people against something, it makes it very tough to get through. So I, I'm, I'm still hopeful we can stop that pipeline. Yeah, me too. Um, so you often like tie your activism to your music. Mm -hmm. um, so um, how do you do that? Like, how, what's the process like for that? Well, I write songs about things I love or people I love. And so... Um, my friends at the Cook Inn, the Keeper, were wanting me to, when they were fighting the Chewitna River mine, they are saying, hey, can you write a song about coal? And they were bugging me, like, for years. And I was, I'd go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't do it. And so finally they were, like, leaning on me. I'm like, well, can you get me there? Because I, I like to go to see the place. Like, right now, 
I just had a conversation with a friend. I really want to go out to Bristol Bay. I mean, I already have a song about it, but I want to be able to tell the indigenous people's stories. I want to meet them. It makes it, the story is just more amazing. It's more compelling. I can be more of a better advocate. But they finally got me out there. They, they hired me to be a camp counselor. That was the deal. It was, it was a blast. But I got a beautiful song. So I like to... I like to go and experience the place, talk to the people, listen to the elders, listen to the land, listen to the river, and and uh, magic happens. I mean, songwriting is not an intellectual thing. It's it's you know you, you call it the muse, you call it the great spirit, but the the magic comes through you. And so I just try to be available and go to the place. Let's take a break from the interview and uh, bring back Dana Lyons for one more song. Salmon come home again and again since the beginning of time, the beginning of when we've been living here. We've been living here forever. The salmon come home again and again since the beginning of time, the beginning of when we've been living here. We've been living on this land forever. Then the Russians came for the fur and ground. They built log forts And we burned them down Then the great flu came Taking old and young We gathered who was left And we begin again The salmon come home Again and again Since the beginning of time The beginning of when We've been living here We've been living here forever Salmon come home again and again since the beginning of time, the beginning of when we've been living here. We've been living on this land forever. Then the oil rigs came, promising us jobs, leaving oil sheets as we carry on. Then the loggers came, taking the great tree. Leaving mountains bare, leaving muddy streets. The salmon come home again and again since the beginning of time, the beginning of when we've been living here. We've been living here forever. The salmon come home again and again since the beginning of time, the beginning of when we've been living here. We've been living on this land forever. our river to destroy our home take our children's future we are one small town we are one proud people we are one with salmon we are one with eagle we are one small town we are one proud people we are still surviving we are still surviving I do not believe Creator wants this to happen I do not believe Creator wants this to happen I do not believe Creator wants this to happen I do not believe Back to the interview 
So what do you think people who are listening to this radio show can do to keep Alaska um, clean and healthy and protect all the things we love about it? Protecting Alaska. And yeah, Alaska's, there's a lot of huge proposed industrial projects here in Alaska, as Alaskans know. Uh, the, on the pebble mines specifically, um, just stay organizers, you and your neighbors, uh, you know, write your senators. Uh, the majority of Alaskans are against this, and this, I think the senators know that, and they need to keep hearing from you, and sooner or later one of them is going to pull the plug on this monstrosity. I, I believe it, we're going to win, but we have to keep at it. Um, for There's a whole bunch of other mines. I mean, we all need to be educated. We need to know what are these proposals, even though it's scary and even though it's depressing. We've got to understand, and that helps us organize and teach our neighbors and our friends. Um, we need to vote. <laughs> we need to get everyone you know, drag them out. We all have flaky friends like, oh, yeah, man, I'll probably do that. Make sure they, I don't know, do you mail your ballots or do you go to the polls here? Uh, what do you all do in Alaska? Uh, it's both, actually. Both. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the villages, you mail them in. Good. Well, drag, you know, offer you to drive your friends. That's, that's, that's my whole mantra this entire year. I know we're nonprofits, so I'm not going to state any political parties. But I, what I will say is if the youth vote increases 7%, then the people who want to protect the land win almost everything. So drag your young friends kicking and screaming to do their civic duty. <laughs> So you're on tour quite often, and you live in the Pacific Northwest, so what uh, are some of the environmental impacts of climate change that you've seen while touring? It's, it's heavy, and it's uh, last year I had the joy of, well, I played Salmon Fest here, and I also toured in Australia, and right back to back. And uh, in Australia I stayed with one of the top activists working to protect the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, he told me that in the last two years, two-thirds of the Great Barrier Reef has died. Now, if the temperature of the water goes down, they can recover in the next few years. But that's a heavy. That's a real heavy. Then I flew here, and I happened to be sitting next to uh, a guy whose brother is one of the main salmon managers here. And he just said the reason they're having so much trouble is because of the warming of the Pacific, the blob. And, and he said a huge amount of rivers had been shut down, and so that, that affects the economy. So those two things were just really frightening to me, so I've actually, I'm reorienting myself to, to work on uh, climate issues. And, and I think uh, the, the most exciting thing going on for climate change, which gives me real hope, are the, are the kids around the world that are walking out of school protest. And, and I, I've always believed that the older generations, you know, speaking of myself, we're, we're kind of used to this economy. We're kind of addicted to it. It's kind of scary for us to step aside. And I've always believed that the youngest generations, you know, our kids and our grandkids, depending on how old you are, they need to, in a way, smack us up the side of the head with a two by four and revolt to get our attention. Because like they're saying, yeah, you're working these jobs to take care of us. We appreciate that. However, some of these jobs are also destroying our future. So it's, it's a, I, think it, I think the only way the human 
species is going to get it is it becomes very personal with the people we love the most, you know, our kids and our grandkids. So that's, I'm working to support them and, uh, and I'm actually hopeful. I'm actually hopeful and that's, uh, that's, a, that's a rare thing on the climate change thing. But I believe there is a path that we can figure it out. It's not going to be easy, but I believe, I believe there's a path. I think it's going to begin soon, like in the next three years. Um, so, uh, along with those incredible kids who have been walking out of school, what else gives you hope? Um, the biggest strategic thing that I see hope, so up to, like I worked on the six coal ports in Washington, Oregon, which we beat all of them, go Washington, Oregon, and very few people thought we were going to win in the beginning. The reason we won those was not because of environmental reasons. It was because of pocketbook issues. I did a 75-show tour on those, the Great Coal Train tour, and there were lots of shows where people would come up and self-identify to me as, you know, I'm a conservative libertarian or I'm a conservative Republican, and people would joke with me, you know, I don't know about this climate change stuff, Dana, but we're going to beat those coal trains. And they were there to beat the coal trains because it affected property values, it affected farms, it affected business, it affected real estate, it affected banking. And it was it was really interesting. Like I was, oh, I'm in the majority for once. I'm not singing to a bunch of hippies chained to a bulldozer trying to save the trees. I'm like, I'm hanging out. <laughs> Everyone's coming to my shows, and they can see I'm a greenie, but they had a good sense of humor, and people were advising me, okay, Dana, this is how you reach the conservative libertarians. It's like, you know, talk about taking America's resources out of America. That's wrong, you know. And, but my point in this where I'm hopeful is what we're experiencing worldwide on the environmental uh, struggle is the the resources are so hard to find now that you have one industry to get their resources is willing to destroy another industry to get those resources the pebble mine is the poster child for this the mining industry a billion dollar industry is willing to wipe out the largest salmon run on earth another billion dollar industry and that's that is why, in the end, we're going to win the Pebble Mine. Because it's against Alaska's interests, it's against Alaska's jobs, it's against pocketbook issues. And for the environmentalists listening out there, if we're honest with ourselves, this was very funny on the coal train tour, like, like oh yeah, yeah, the environment, yeah, health, yeah. What? This is gonna affect my property values? You know, <laughs> it's like pocketbook issues are really what matter to us all, because we're all struggling. But because of that, when you think about that, this is happening all over the world. You have one industry versus another, or several industries. So what that does mathematically is, it's not just the enviros like me saying, uh, you know, save the salmon, save this. We have giant allies. We have situations where our neighbors across the way, who may have been in a different, different, different political party, and we might disagree on everything, but yeah, we're gonna protect the water, we're gonna protect the salmon, we can get together on that. It's creating coalitions that have never existed before. That is the ticket. And if you notice, if you look at the whole world political situation, what the powers that be are trying to do, they're trying to dissolve democracy and really weaken democracy because they see the coalitions occurring. God forbid that people talk to each other. God forbid that neighbors chat and we get beyond real disagreements and say, we have this in common, and we're actually going to beat, like Bellingham, my town, I'm very proud of this, we beat Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs wanted the coal port in our town, 
And people are like, how can Bellingham beat Goldman Sachs? We beat them because it was 80% of the people and anyone who was in favor of that coal mine lost the election. That, so go team. It's, it's very hopeful in, in every country around the world. This is true. And, and it's going to come to play in other uh, issues besides the pebble mine. So my last question for you, um, you often incorporate uh, humor into your songs, even when they're about like really, um, really big issues. So how do you do that? And why is that important to you? I guess we go crazy <laughs> otherwise. It's, well, uh, like like some some songs are a beautiful story and a ballad, very touching. Or some songs you want to get the anger going. But like some things are so <laughs> bizarre that you... You have to come at it from kind of a ridiculous point of view. And my, my favorite thing is I like to make a, a hero of the villain. Like, uh, you know, my Ride the Lawn, you know, the, the, the epic hero cowboy out cutting his yard. Or when I, I wrote a song on nuclear waste where I made the, you know, the nuclear waste people the hero. And if you... If you do it in a respectful way, people enjoy being made fun of, like, and they like being the hero. It's kind of a, they get it, they get it, they know they're being razzed, but, uh, you know, it's like things, you gotta laugh. <laughs> you, you gotta laugh or else you go, you go crazy. It's the way I stay sane. And so, like, I, like I'm doing a lot of pep talk in this interview, but I, I pepper my shows with some ballads, some you know, go get them, but you, you throw in the comedy, you just have a good laugh, and like, at the end of the day, we got to have fun, and that's what we're doing here at Salmon Fest. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us on Salmon Fest Radio. I am 25 years old, and I've walked a thousand miles Through the tundra where we hunt the caribou I have seen the antlers fall, I have smelled the steaming blood. Through the Arctic snow we carry home the food. First my grandmother is fed, then the elder with no child. Then Jamie who's disabled and the best, meat goes to feed the old and to feed the very young and to take care of their mothers and what's left I take home to my cash I tan the hide and prep and give thanks to the creator I speak my heart How we love our land And I pray that I can make them It's always great to get musicians at Salmon Fest that are true activists at heart, and obviously Dana Lyons has done a lot of work on stage and off, fighting for the world he would like to live in. You know, Dana talked about pocketbook issues in Bellingham, Washington, and other places along the lower 48 and into British Columbia. 
Well, pocketbook issues in rural Alaska are very different because what you have in your pocket is going to be different. It's interesting to have these two interviews side by side because they kind of seem like they're out of touch with one another. But really, it is all connected. And we have to acknowledge that movements aren't happening in a vacuum. Environmental issues in the more populous centers of Alaska and the Pacific Northwest and all over the world, they're not happening in a vacuum. And the things that people are rallying about and fighting for, they are affecting people all over the world whose voices you don't hear as often, including Charlie Wright's. Okay, my name is Charlie Wright. I currently live in Rampart. I grew up in Rampart, uh, live in a subsistence lifestyle. After high school, I moved to Tanana, and I lived there for almost 30 years, living a subsistence lifestyle there. I've been a water plant operator most of my life, so I'm a big part of the health of the community. Rampart is right about dab middle in the state on the Yukon River, and it's very mountainous area. They call it the canyon, the ramparts. We do have a narrow river, and it's deep and swift. Salmon is a huge part of our life along the Yukon. Uh, I consider us a salmon culture. And it's slowly disappearing now because of the lack of salmon. But salmon is a huge part of our well-being. My grandparents and my parents are raised on salmon. And I, I was raised on salmon and I raised my family on salmon. So it's a huge part of our diet. And we make it in a bunch of different ways, so it's the, our main staple, I'd say, uh, through the winter. We like to fish a traditional style that our ancestor fished and used to fish on the side in your area. The salmon tend to stick to the side. The, the weaker ones will be closer to the side of the river. So the weaker ones would be the ones that we could reach with a fish wheel or a net. And those are going to go into a contributory to the Yukon and spawn maybe within hundreds of miles of our village. So therefore, we don't bother to fish in the middle of the river that are going upriver. We, we worry about our, our brothers and sisters upriver having enough to eat just like us. And that's why it's really good to fish on the side and you're fishing your local fish so you're not affecting the fish going up there to Canada a long time ago. When I was a kid, there was still a lot of really strong traditional knowledge holders alive and around still. I was really fortunate to have been mentored by a great man from the land. He taught me uh, about cycles of animals and when to trap hard and when you can't, uh, how to manage a beaver house to make sure you don't over trap it so that there'll always be food in that beaver house for you in the future. So we've always been taught not to take more than, than we need. You know, that perspective to take just what you need seems to exist for Charlie in all aspects of his life, not only in harvesting beavers and, and other mammals, but also in the strategies used to take fish on the Yukon River. Normally you'll get kings, summer chum, fall chum, and cohos. That's the four that I will see in my region. I, I catch king salmon with the fish nets. Then in, later on in the fall, when the chums come in, the summer chums get caught in the net with the kings. And that's kind of when we stop fishing kings, when those show up in, in bigger numbers. Then we have a break and we get a fish wheel ready. The fish wheel runs on the side of the river. It's anchored to the river bank. And it, we push it out in the river. It floats on a raft and it consists of two or sometimes three baskets 
like scoops and, it, and the, the current from the river makes it spin. We use two leads to hold it, the raft out in the river, two logs that from the edge of the beach out to the fish wheel raft. And you could put a fence on there, it's called a lead. It leads every fish that swims by out into that basket that's spinning. So you catch pretty much everything going by. In times of conservation, we just, we leave the lead out, I do. So I'm only catching really good quality fish out into deep water that's good for human consumption. So in, in the fall time, we use the fish wheel for catching fall chum. So they come in great numbers. They have really sharp teeth. So it's really hard. Uh, they get stuck in the net real bad and it tears the net up and it tears your fingers up. So it makes a lot more sense, especially if you have a dog team or a large family, you got to catch many of them. Fish wheel is a really good catching tool. Everybody used to have a dog team when I was young. There was probably maybe 150 people in my village of Rampart when I was growing up and there was uh, at times, it was up to 500 sled dogs in the community for doing your chores, trapping, hauling wood, and to travel, and hunting. It was our main way to get around, and now with the lack of salmon, in the last three years, the, all the people had to get rid of their dog teams because they couldn't feed them. So the last few years, the dogs, uh, the do all the dog yards have been, they've been cutting their number of dogs down, trying to sell them to people who couldn't afford the commercial feed. But a lot, of, a lot of dog teams don't exist anymore. Another culture that's disappearing because of the lack of salmon. The people who live along the Yukon are salmon people, but in Charlie's lifetime, that access to salmon and the strength of those salmon returns has significantly diminished. Well, in history, on the Yukon River, in the spring, the king salmon would start coming in and there was up to eight pulses of them coming the river and they ran all summer long into fall. Now there's only one, two, maybe three pulses. When I was a child at fish camp with my grandparents and my parents, the fish were so big that we could hear them across the river banging on the fish wheel box. They were so strong, so large, they were anywhere from uh, 100 pounds down, but average, uh, you could catch 30 to 50 pounders every day. Those fish have gotten smaller through my life to where your average is maybe 15 to 20 pounds, and the numbers have gotten small. Like I said, there used to be many pulses. Now there's only uh, sometimes only two. We were restricted last summer down to uh, very few openings. The salmon are in trouble by a lot of different factors. It doesn't happen overnight. This has been happening for 20 years. We've been restricted king salmon fishing. So it's kind of a death from a thousand cuts. You could add climate. Uh, the ocean is getting beat up by all kinds of different fishing. They're taking out everything from whales to sharks to the bottom fish, trawling, bycatch. Now we're seeing uh, ichneophonus in the salmon. The later run of salmon last summer that we had opportunity on for some subsistence take was loaded with some kind of disease that's in the fish. And this is in the king salmon. And it showed up in the past. Some years real bad. Some years you see just a little bit of it. 
but last summer was the worst that's ever been seen. They don't really know a lot about it, but they are doing some studies now because it got so bad. So we're hoping to learn more about it. But it uh, it's kind of like the fish gets pussy and stink. So it's they feed it to the dogs. So it's uh, not really good to eat. And it seemed to be the worst ever in the third pulse last summer. The fish are coming back small. They're not coming back hard. And they're coming back sick. So what does that mean for these communities? Well, there, there's not a store in Rampart right now. No store at all. So a lot of the families that don't have jobs rely on that fish a lot. And to have food mailed in or freighted in on an airplane, an air service, you have to add the freight to it. So that doubles the price of the food that gets sent in. So without moose meat or salmon, life is hard all winter for everybody there. There's only 50 people in my village, so there's not a lot of economics in there. And in a lot of other villages, as you go upriver and downriver, that have zero economic development, they do rely a lot on salmon and game. So there's a lot of people that are gonna go hungry on the river. Life is like a circle for us. And when you take that salmon out of that circle, it causes depression, starvation, and it, it kind of breaks that circle. It, it makes people start doing different things. When people can't do what they normally do, they, they'll go down a different path, especially young people. For instance, if a family loses their man, the, their provider, nobody to teach the young men in the family how to hunt or fish. They turn to drugs, they turn to abuse. It's, it's a big part of our well-being, being able to get salmon and game. It's a, kind of our culture. So it's, it's really rough on the people not to get their substance from the land. Indigenous people here in Alaska have adapted to a changing landscape for centuries, and that's a superpower as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Charlie is doing exactly that right now. He's adapting to the different circumstances and seeking out different food in different areas and trying to maintain the continuity of the culture through the process. But there are also people across the state who are taking a different, more, more scientific approach to addressing the diminishing returns on the Yukon. So Charlie's also working with land and, and fisheries managers to, to help get more researchers and more perspectives into how they can support this fishery. It sure is a complicated problem, due in part to the complex life cycle of a salmon that takes them thousands of miles out to sea and brings them back to their freshwater natal streams. There's a lot going on and a lot apparently we still don't understand. People are already trying to adapt and do other things. If people get busy right away and catch uh, local fish early in the spring and then do it again in the fall and hunt hard for other game. I trapped hard for beaver this spring and I've got beaver meat in the freezer and I'll catch freshwater fish as soon as the river opens. We're hunting and hunt birds. I packed up my boat and I went over a hundred miles away to an area that has more meat in there and I was successful. I share a little bit of that when I can with other family members and people that I think that need some. 
you could tell who's struggling in the village when it's the middle of the winter. It's not hard to see, so you help where you can. If we got it, we'll share it. I'll definitely try to hunt every every large animal I can this year to try to compensate for the loss of salmon. But we're talking about the loss of a culture that's already been dwindled down to almost nothing. For years, because I had the opportunity to be around great traditional knowledge holders when I was a young man, I took it upon myself to pass that knowledge on and I've been bringing young school kids out beaver trapping and I even take some adults that didn't have the opportunity to learn like I did from an elder. I'll take them out there put up a tent in the winter, kind of towards spring when beaver trapping starts. I'd bring them out there and I'd say, this is your beaver house and I'd teach them all about managing it, how to read the ice going to it for their safety how to put in a set, where to put it at, it all, it all matters. Then at lunchtime, in the middle of the day, or when we're done checking our sets, we'd go to that tent that I put up and we'd dry our gear and warm up. I'd feed them salmon or dry moose meat. And I'd tell them stories that were handed down to me from my elders. And, and I'd tell them things that they need to know on how to read ice, how to read the weather, how to read animal life cycles so they could manage their area better that they're going out in. So it all adds up and, and uh, when, when one of those young men catch a beaver and they bring it home to their family and share that success with them, it really picks them up. It teaches them how to be a good steward of the land. Respect your animals and your elders and being able to provide is such a good feeling that it makes you be a better person overall. The impacts that the folks in rural Alaska are seeing, the folks along the Yukon, are caused by millions of people thousands of miles away. The challenges of uh, keeping a healthy ocean, the challenges of controlling our rising temperatures, you know, there's not a lot that the people in Rampart can do about that, but the impact of those things are affecting folks directly and, and seriously, as we hear in the interview. Right now, the campaign to stop the Arctic Refuge, one of the tenets of that is that you stop the banks. So the banks were stopped, right, from investing on the refuge. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and all these banks have signed policies that said, we're not going into Arctic Refuge. But who's going to do that for, for Rampart? That's a little village on the Yukon. It's not in a national park. It's not in a protected area. And it's and it's uh, dealing with the consequences of the burning of fossil fuel and the human impacts on the ocean and all of those things. And they're just waiting for those fish to come home. I appreciate you saying that because I think that it's so much easier to mobilize around that point source, that like that thing that is causing the problem that we can see and we can stop. And we know that climate change is causing a lot of problems. We know that the industrialization of our ocean fleets and the the way we interact with the ocean is causing a lot of problems, but we don't have one clear plug that we can just say, all right, take the money out of this industry. Well, I mean, keep it in the ground. Activists are doing that everywhere. Land back activists, 30 by 30 activists are doing that. But it's a much slower process. And the realities for the communities in that area 
it means they have to adapt and they have to have local meetings and they have to like go through the bureaucracy and and get in the same room and figure out the best ways with all the decision makers at the table and it's not sexy and it's not something that people can go wave signs about it's not something that a song is going to like change a whole bunch of people's mindset and suddenly there's going to be like people showing up on the banks of the Yukon ready to chain themselves to something like it's it's just doing the hard work to protect one another in your community and care like it's just it's <laughs> it's sitting in a room and it's problem solving because they're not fighting against one thing in particular the managers tend to manage people they try to do the best they can a lot of years now we had a moratorium and that is the only thing that was really effective on making more salmon come back up the river. They say three times more fish come back when there's no humans fishing on the river. If we have to, then moratorium is in line again. That's going to be real hard on the people. We hope that if there's really low numbers that we get just a little bit of opportunity so people can eat and we could continue our culture, but if it's real low, then we'll have to just switch to a four inch mesh net that doesn't target salmon to catch local species to let those fish go to the spawning ground. We're kind of to the point now where we're gonna lose them, lose the whole king salmon run in the Yukon River if we don't take drastic measures. So we hope and we pray that good numbers show up but we are far from out of the woods conservation of king salmon and chum salmon on the Yukon River. A lot of fish camps along the Yukon now are brushed over. They don't operate no more because of lack of opportunity and lack of numbers of salmon. So you can't, can't say that the people along the river are, are any part of the, the decline of salmon in the Yukon. There's nobody hardly fishing anymore. There's no more dog teams. So it's something else that's going on whether too much commercial in the past, and definitely something in the ocean is causing those fish not to come back. And, and uh, a couple of years ago, we had heat stress. We had a really hot summer and, and the water was low, really low, the lowest I ever seen it in my life. And on the Kaikuk River, there was thousands of chum salmon found dead along the river banks because the water was so low, the sun in the hot summer warmed up the water to a temperature that they weren't used to and it caused stress in those fish. So they died before they spawned. They find them thousands on the beach uh, with the eggs still in. And that's a shallow river, fast river. So it, those fish were able to be seen and washed up on the bank. Yukon is so big and deep that we think some of our kings might have died also, and the river is so big that it absorbs them. So I know that that, that summer did cause a lot more damage than we think on the Yukon. And in that same year, because the water was so hot, uh, some of the kings going up the river went off into cold, cooler contributaries, clear water creeks going into the Yukon before they got to where they usually go. So we don't know this for a fact yet, but I've seen in my own eyes salmon in a creek where they, they're not normally there in that many numbers. There's a lot more there now, and they were seen going into the mouth 
bank to bank real thick. So there's a little bit of hope there that maybe they're not going to Canada no more and they're spawning in Alaskan contributaries to the Yukon. Now, that would be a prayer answered. Um, sad for our Canadian brothers and sisters, but at least maybe there's hope for the salmon. I hear there's um, more genetics going to be done, so we could do some testing in the future to see those salmon and those where they're being seen where they weren't before, or maybe it was long ago, we don't know. We want to get those tested to verify whether they're still here. And uh, there's hope for their numbers to continue. And then we're looking forward to uh, in-river sonar. So we could back up uh, the sonar that's at pilot station near the mouth of the Yukon counts the fish coming up river. And they seem to be disappearing before they get to Canada. So if we have more sonar in the river, then we can know for sure what's in the river and get a better accurate count. And if those fish, king salmon are peeling off in, in Alaskan waters now, instead of going to Canada, that would be really good news for the species. It's exciting to see managers taking note of what the local people are noticing and, and putting more resources into that area to see if there is hope. Yeah, it's a good example of the recognition that there are a bunch of ways to understand salmon. And when we bring together indigenous knowledge and, uh, quote, Western science, we have the best chance possible of figuring out this complicated and urgent issue. Yeah, that's certainly what Charlie believes. In our fishery meetings, we're trying to include traditional knowledge into management for say, I kind of say like uh, co-managing with them to uh, help them along the way and help ourselves along the way with uh, science and traditional knowledge mixed. We think that we could do a little bit better so we can maybe keep continuing to feed the people along the river and keep the salmon culture alive. I just appreciate Charlie joining us today. What a great uh, example of somebody who's using uh, everything they have to protect the place they care about, the people who live there, and that connection with uh, all of the strength of his arms and heart and head. So hats off to Charlie and our friends up all along the Yukon River. What do we got left, Satchel? We're uh, swimming on over into our jamming for salmon section. Oh yeah, about time. Who's up to bat today? I believe you announced this band loudly and proudly at Salmon Fest 2019. I'll let you take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, batten down the hatches. Pay close attention to the people you love around you. This is not a drill. Please welcome Wookie Ford. Remember to keep your arms and hands inside the vehicle at all times.
closing out the set with the burrows. But what I'm talking about is unity. Unity under this groove. This one's called love and unity. Everybody come together now. Cause the groove that we are putting down ain't about to wait for you to decide the why, the what, the how. Step on the floor and settle in. Let this beat be a medicine. No, this ain't a debate. Listen to what we say. We teachers tell them, girls. People are trying to come against it though. Every day people talk with their fingers. Singing words whose poison seems to linger. Drawing lines and searching for the rainbow. We're closing out the show with gratitude. We want to thank everyone who has made this podcast and radio show possible. We'll start with Pastor Tim and Brian Belay, who recorded the tunes we get to enjoy every episode. And our friends at KBBI, who have uh, guided us through this adventure and also provided this fancy audio equipment. And to our interviewees this episode, our band featured Dana Lyons, who was interviewed by Allie Rosenbluth. And our salmon champion, Charles Wright, 
who I really enjoyed talking to. And of course, the organizers of Salmon Fest. And Cook and the Keeper for stewarding this project along. And who could forget our intrepid producer, Kira Hardy. Thanks, Kira. We'll talk with you next time on Salmon Fest Radio. And don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. We would also love your feedback, so hit us up anytime at salmonfestradio at inletkeeper.org. And for now, don't forget, spawn on, Alaska. This is Dana Lyons, the singer of Cows with Guns, and you're listening to Salmon Stock Radio. <laughs>